We're sponsored today by Provider Solutions and Development. They have over 20 years as experts in holistic career coaching with exclusive access to hundreds of positions nationwide. Start the conversation or reach out to one of their career navigators today at info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Panacea offers loans just for physicians and medical students with low rates, free checking with no ATM fees nationwide, and 24-7 live customer service. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to open your account and join a bank built with you in mind. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Yep, that's right. There's no interruption. There's no Wado. It's just me and Molly. <laughs> it feels cold. <laughs> it feels so lonely. Sounds so sad, Paul. <laughs> no, I am. I'm thrilled that you're with us. You know what? We don't need those chumps. We're doing. We did right? fine without right? them. <laughs> yeah. So heck with them. But uh, so I'm sorry. So I am here with my co-host Molly Hoyblind and could not be more delighted to be so. Uh, on tonight's episode, we are thrilled to be able to discuss the approach to diagnosing and treating stable uh, coronary heart disease and stable angina with our guests, Daniel Ambinder and Rick Ferraro. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. In just a moment, I'll let Molly tell us about what we talked about with this episode and give you some of our takeaway points. And I should probably also remind the audience what we do on this show. This feels incredibly awkward, but I'm transitioning to myself. We are the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to review clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Molly, I am sick of the sound of my own voice already. Please tell me, what we talked about tonight. Happy to take over, Paul. Uh, so we had a great conversation with two guests from the Cardio Nerds, Dr. Daniel Ambender and Dr. Rick Ferraro, to talk about stable angina. And they really did a great job describing to me um, this concept that stable angina is a very different uh, pathophysiology and very different condition compared to acute coronary syndrome, and that we have time to treat our patients with preventative medications and lifestyle measures, and that stenting or cath is not an urgent procedure. Our first guest, Dr. Daniel Ambender at Dr. Underscore Dan MD, is an interventional slash structural cardiology fellow at the John Hopkins Hospital. He received his medical degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine and completed residency at the Osler program at the John Hopkins Hospital, where he also completed his general cardiology fellowship. He is co-founder of the Cardio Nerds and serves as an assi assistant social media editor for at Cirque AHA and at Hopkins Heart. Passions include medical education, development of high quality med-ed content, and bedside teaching. Clinical and research interests include resuscitation of cardiac arrest, mechanical circulatory support, coronary and structural heart disease. Paul, could you tell us about Dr. Rick Ferrero? Happy to, Molly. Thank you. We are also joined by Rick Ferraro, who is a Cardio Nerds podcast producer and current senior resident in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. 
He is honored to be part of the Cardio Nerds team, recently helping to develop the Cardio Nerds Journal Club on Twitter and hosting the Cardio Nerds podcast series on lipids. He'll be staying at Johns Hopkins Hospital for a cardiology fellowship in July and looks forward to continuing to promote digital medical education and cardiovascular prevention during fellowship. And with those introductions, let's get into it. Hi, Dr. Daniel Ambitter and Dr. Rick Ferraro. We're so excited to have you on the show. This is really great to be doing a uh, joint effort here with Cardio Nerds. So to get started, we'd like to do some rapid fire questions to get to know you a little bit better. Can we start with you, Dan? Can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. I'm a 36-year-old male person who's from originally New York, but now I live in Baltimore. I'm an interventional cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins and also one of the Cardio Nerds co-founders. And I'm super excited to be here. Great. I am so impressed that you guys are still in training and managed to create so much content. That's amazing. <laughs> and Rick, how about you? Yeah, thanks for having us. This is this is a ton of fun. I'm 31 years old and uh, from Chicago originally, went to medical school in New York and now at Hopkins with Dan. All right, we'll go with the old standbys. I, I think and we talked a little bit off air about Dan's answer already, but I'm so excited to hear it just to be recorded for posterity. So tell me about your favorite book. Okay, so my I'm not a big book person, actually, I'm more of an audio learner. So most of what I do is from audio and visual, uh, which is why I'm very interested in podcasting. And again, a real treat to be here today, guys. But uh, my book of choice is Goodnight Moon. I find it extremely soothing. Uh, I'd like to say that I read it only to my kids, but sometimes I find myself just going leafing through the pages, <laughs> getting absorbed in this tucked away bed with the little buddy. Goodnight room, goodnight moon. I have it memorized also, yep. yes. <laughs> my little bit older than one-year-old, that puts him to bed almost every night. All right, Rick, any recommendations for us? You know, I just read, this is kind of another podcast shout out, but the uh, Planet Money by NPR, they had a book come out recently called Money, the, the story of a totally made up thing or something along those lines. It's absolutely fantastic. I, I highly recommend. Excellent. And now that things are starting to come back to normal after the pandemic, what are you most looking forward to being able to do? We'll start with you, Rick. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm actually getting married next month. Uh, so congratulations, a lot of big Top things coming up here, but, uh, getting back to traveling and obviously getting, getting married is going to be an exciting thing. Awesome. Honest to God, I'm just like really excited to see people's faces. Like there are some new fellows that joined the program this year that I literally know eyes up, you know, it's crazy. Like, uh, like, uh, it's very confusing, like just, uh, getting to know people over the year, you learn their personalities, but you like, don't see their smile. You know, and you could look at pictures to like see what they look like, but still. So I'm really excited to start like meeting people properly in that way. I think that's a great one. One of my trainees, I was talking to her about that and she was like, yeah, but sometimes there's the surprise mustache and then you kind of wish that. <laughs> yes. Or goatee. <laughs> Absolutely. But it might only be masking, you know, like maybe they're not actually, they don't usually wear that like, you know, regularly, but it's because of the mask. So maybe, you know. Anyways. Something I'm genuinely concerned about is the fact that of all the perks of wearing a mask all the time, like I darkly mutter a lot under my breath. Like I'm just constantly swearing at people in traffic and <laughs> anyone who's in front of me. Like I've been getting away with it clean for like a year now. And I think that it's going to be really hard to adjust once the masks come off. So I'm a little bit nervous about that, if I'm being honest. True that. <laughs> hey, audience. You know that I love reading. I'm always looking for new book recommendations from our guests, but I don't always have time to sit down and read these things. That's why I love Audible. Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment that is all in one place. As an Audible member, you get a free credit. Ever 
As an Audible member, you get a credit every month that's good for any title in their entire premium collection, and those titles are yours to keep forever in your Audible library. They have thousands and thousands of audiobooks, original entertainment, guided fitness and meditation, sleep tracks for better rest, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of some of your favorite shows and exclusive Audible originals that you won't find anywhere else. Personally, I really loved listening to uh, the book Switch by the Heath Brothers, which has a lot of great ideas about how to make change within an organization. Also, always check out anything by Malcolm Gladwell. He does the absolute best audiobooks, and they're all on there. With an Audible membership, you can download titles, listen online, anytime, anywhere. And a fun fact, they have so much content that if you listen to every title on Audible, you'd be listening for more than three centuries unless you're, you know, one of these people that listens on 2x speed, which I, I do not recommend. So new members, try Audible free for 30 days. You can visit audible.com slash curb or text curb to 500-500. Once again, visit audible.com slash curb or text curb to 500-500. All right. Well, let's, uh, why don't we move on to our first case, Molly? Um, why, and I'll, I'll let you do the honors. I think. Why, why don't we set it up? We're talking about um, stable angina. Maybe we have other terms for it, but let's let's set things up. So, Molly, I'll let you lead the discussion. Great. So we can start with a case from Cashlack. Uh, Mr. DeAngina is a 55-year-old man with hypertension on lisinopril 10 milligrams, hyperlipidemia on Simva 20, prediabetes and obesity with a BMI of 31. And he's presenting to clinic with intermittent chest pain or pressure over the last six months that he notices when he's climbing stairs. So we'd really like to start with some definitions. Um, Dan, could you help us by defining stable angina? Yeah, I definitely would love to, Molly. Thanks for asking that question. Uh, stable angina is as it is as it sounds. It's chest pain that is almost like predictable. You can kind of think about it as a predictable angina. So classically, it's chest pain that that is you know you know substernal. It may radiate up and down the arms, you know, to the neck. It may even be not even chest pain. It may be like a chest discomfort. In fact, when you ask patients if you have chest pain and it's not chest pain, it's chest discomfort, they'll be like, no, 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 I don't have chest pain. It's just discomfort, you know, so some, something like that. And it tends to get worse with exertion and usually this tip, the same amount of exertion. So patients will say, yeah, well, when I walk, you know, X amount of blocks, I will get this sensation and it's relieved with rest because as we'll talk about a little bit soon, as we'll talk about soon, it really matches this pathophys of an obstruction of blood flow, but that's adequate at rest. But with increased blood flow, you know, needs, you end up bringing out these symptoms of angina. And so that is basically what stable angina is, really stable, reliable, gets worse with exertion, gets better with rest, and may be relieved with things that promote better blood flow, such as nitroglycerin. Can I ask you all, and why don't, maybe I'll even ask Rick, to differentiate this from unstable angina, which, as I've been doing some reading for this episode, is now, I feel like I'm, I'm actually reading eye rolls in the literature. Like there, it, it used to be, I think, a term that we threw about all the time, and now it's, it's I feel like, well some controversy about that or sort of the less said, the better. So can you tell us what unstable angina is? Am I still allowed to use that as a term? or is there something, <laughs> You, you is are there still allowed to use that. You know, Dan and I have talked about this previously, you know, in the era of high sensitivity troponin, it's a less frequent diagnosis than it has been in the past, because now things that we know are NSTEMIs or non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, we now would have previously called unstable angina, right? 
Well, but it still exists. And basically what we're looking at is an acute change from exactly what Dan mentioned before. So let's say someone can walk three to four blocks without noticing chest pain, and now they're noticing it walking to their car outside their house, right? And, and importantly, this is going to be different treatment standpoint. You may even be going down the ACS algorithm here. So, so it's, it's a pretty different, uh, it's a different entity. Yeah. And if I could just piggyback on that, you know, again, really thinking about the pathophys of the situation really unlocks all these terms, right? So in stable angina, you have a plaque that has been developing over time. It's calcified at times. It's hard. It's not really dynamic. And so it's a fixed obstruction, right? And so that's why, as we said, at rest, you don't have symptoms, but at stress, you will. Um, and it doesn't really change that much. But enter unstable angina. Now we're dealing with a situation where there's a plaque rupture event or some sort of erosion in the endothelium, and things are dynamic, things are changing. So platelets are aggregating and platelets are relaxing, thrombosis is occurring, thrombosis is relaxing. And so you could have a change in the symptoms that is not predictable anymore, right? And yes, it might get worse with exercise and stress and may get better with rest, but the degree of the exercise now is different because the degree of stenosis is different. And now once you have some sort of event that becomes unstable or unpredictable, now you can move along a spectrum of ACS, acute coronary syndromes, from unstable angina to the end STEMI. And then if it becomes a full occlusion, it can become STEMI. And sometimes it goes backwards as well. So that is the big fundamental difference between stable angina and unstable angina and how we piece it out. So if a patient says, you know, doc, I was totally fine walking to the block, uh, but today I can't. Today it's the stairs. So that tells me that something changed, whether it's the same tight stenosis that popped and now there's some platelets and is, it's, a, it's at that site, or there's a completely other site that didn't have a big stenosis, maybe a 30% lesion, and now that popped, you know, that tells me that something's different and I have to evaluate the patient differently. Can I ask a dumb question? And I don't want to dominate the discussion. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, how do you differentiate new stable angina from unstable angina, right? Because stable angina has to start at some point and it's a relatively new symptom that's different from the patient's baseline. So how, I feel like this is an idiotic question. I'm sure there's an obvious answer, but how do you make that differentiation or sort of how do you tell the difference between those two things early on? Yeah. So it's all, it's all really a scale, right? You can move back and forth along the scale and it's a waxing and waning process. And I think one of the things or concepts that's really important to to keep in mind here and, and, and something that comes up a lot talking to residents is kind of MI, unstable angina, stable angina, right? So when we're talking about stable angina, we're talking about coronary artery blockages. And fundamentally, that's an oxygen supply demand mismatch, right? Leading to ischemia, there's a blockage, it's, it's obstructing coronary flow. Unstable angina, something in the coronary tree, we may or may not know where that is, has acutely changed, right? And that is leading to uh, an, an acute adjustment. So for example, like you were saying, if someone presents with a little bit of chest pain, they're walking four or five blocks, that might be new stable angina, right? But if you're having really new significant pain that's coming out of nowhere, you do need to call that unstable angina. Now, the 2019 ESC guidelines are, are actually, they, they talk on this pretty specifically, and, and they address that confusion as well. And they say that it is kind of, you can move between stable and unstable angina. It really is a kind of communicable process. Now, that's separate than an MI, right? When you have an acute myocardial infarction, you are having acute plaque rupture. You're having acute downstream ischemia and uh, infarction. So, so they're different processes, but yeah, the sliding scale there is, it's a tricky one to follow. 
I think that pathophysiology is really helpful to think about because I think when I learned about this many years ago, I sort of more had the image that stable angina was a little bit of narrowing and then an MI was more narrowing. But thinking about mm. it more as that acute plaque rupture really sort of puts into you know clear relief why those would be experienced so differently. Um, one thing that I run into is that a lot of my patients have chest pain and they're not able to give as clear of a, you know, it only happens when I climb stairs kind of story. And they say, oh, it happens when I get upset. It happens when I walk up the hill. It happens when I run for the bus. And they they don't know if it's gotten worse. Do you have a way of sort of sussing that out from patients? So I would say chest pain is is complicated. You know, when you're admitting somebody in the hospital for knee pain, Sometimes patients will endorse chest pain. And as we all know, uh, definitely growing up, you know, like, you know, you're like, oh, no, I got to address this chest pain. And when I was like an intern, I'd sweat a lot about this and be like, I I have to now include this as a whole new paragraph in my HFP. How do I assess that? And so chest pain can be really challenging. And as I said, some people just say like, yeah, it feels like I have to belch. Like, don't tell me I have chest pain. I'm telling you, I just have to burp. So um, how do you suss that out? And the answer really is you got to look at the patient as a whole. And, and this isn't like a hard and fast rule because there are young patients that do present with acute coronary syndromes, sometimes due to premature CAD or, or coronary artery disease, or, but sometimes, you know, other things like spontaneous dissection. So you have to be careful. But in general, lay the, the patient's story on top of who they are in terms of their risk factors, right? And that really is going to guide you in deciding whether or not you need to pursue this, right? And that's really the key that I have to say, you know, it's very hard. To, you know, I just took care of a person the other day who has been complaining of shortness of breath, right, for a very long time. But it was classic. He, he was like, shortness of breath, one flight of stairs, boom. And obviously, he had been to the pulmonologist. He had PFTs that were completely normal and, uh, and basically ended up coming in and just had horrendous coronary artery disease, really, really, really catastrophic and actually needed bypass, not emergently, because again, he had stable angina, but clearly his shortness of breath was his symptom. So the thing that made me think that it was a higher probability of finding obstructive coronary artery disease was that real story of that on and off, up the stairs, down the stairs. But caution, because again, as particularly in women, this classic angina story is really not predictable. And you have to take uh, women very seriously, particularly when they talk about chest discomfort. And just, again, think about risk factors. Do they have diabetes? Do they smoke? Um, do they have a family history of coronary artery disease? That is what the biggest guider for me, whether or not I should continue this, you know, pursuing this chest pain and figuring out what would be next steps for the evaluation of it. Guess this while we're, while we're still on path of his land, and as you sort of mentioned that, like, I, you know, I think one of the things that is appealing about ischemic heart disease in general is conceptually, at least historically, it's been fairly understandable. So you have this fixed stenotic lesion, there's supplied man dispatch, ouch, I have chest pain when I exert myself, and I'm better when I rest, great, fantastic. Uh, now it's all kind of flappy and dynamic, this is unstable angina, that's not good. Um, and then that progresses to complete occlusion, uh-oh, whoopsie daisy, now we have an MI and we have something to deal with, and that, that makes sense and I like it. But I feel like recently, uh, there's been the discussion about the, the microvascular disease or this non-obstructive coronary artery disease, which is something like, what, 40, 50% of the time of angina, I feel like I'm reading in some of the more recent literature. So I'm wondering, how does that fit in to this current paradigm? Like, what, what, are, what are we to do with that? How are we to think about that? And I guess there's, I mean, you could probably answer that for the next two hours, but where do I start at least? <laughs> Rick, take it away and I'll, uh, I'll piggyback. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about that. And I would add just one kind of 
kind of additional pearl to what you all said. And this is another thing that was highlighted in 2019 ESC guidelines on chronic coronary syndrome, which is basically just a catch-all term for what we're talking about, the symptoms of CAD. And they note that only 10 to 15%, as low as 10 to 15% of patients present with typical angina, right? So what we, the classic story that we hear and the classic story we're hearing in the case here with Mr. D'Angelo, it's not as common as, as we might think, right? And dyspnea is absolutely an anginal equivalent that's highlighted. In terms of non-obstructive disease, so here we're, we're talking about the symptoms of angina, right? And, and you might on stress testing, which we can talk about in a bit, uh, still have ischemia. But what you're going to have when you, when you actually take a look, either with coronary CTA or with a formal angiogram, is not non-obstruction. You're not going to have obstructive epicardial vessels, which are the primary vessels of the heart, right? And this is uh, this has become kind of a hot topic recently. It's uh, you know previously we really focused on these big majorly stenotic lesions, but what we've learned more recently is that MI events, ASCVD events, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events, really occur anywhere. It's not just the big scary obstructive lesions; those are certainly at risk to cause MIs. Uh, but overall, CAD burden actually correlates closest with CA, with ASCVD event risk, right? And so one, you need to think about kind of like the whole picture of what is the extent of CAD burden. And there are a lot of ways to look at that that we can talk about. Second part is actually symptoms and, and who, who actually presents with this. And, and as Dan mentioned, it's, it's more non-obstructive coronary artery disease and, and what we would call like ENOCA, ischemia with non-obstructive coronary arteries, is a common presentation in women patients. And we can talk a little bit about a big trial that happened recently, the ischemia trial, but in that trial, they kind of separated patients into two different groups, and you were screened out if you didn't have obstructive coronaries. As a result of that, the, the final kind of randomized sample was only 29% women. But when they screened out that they made a separate study, Chow Ischemia, with kind of the screened out population, and that population was actually 66% women. So this is a, a really important population, and we can talk about how you treat that, but uh, definitely need to pay attention to it. So yeah, but uh, just to add some practical notes. So as Rick said, this is a big problem. As uh, Paul, you alluded to, it's definitely a big problem. And the key here is to take people's symptoms seriously, right? And just because it used to be that you find no obstructive disease, okay, this isn't cardiac, right? No, we don't think like that anymore because we recognize, like, I got to get blood flow to the cell, right? And if I'm not getting blood flow to the cell because an epicardial coronary artery is blocked, then I'll get angina. And if I'm not getting it because our microvascular is not working well, microvasculature is not working well, I'm also not going to get blood to the cell, right? And so either way, the, the cells are screaming, they're hungry, and they hurt. And then I hear it, you know? So like, it doesn't make a difference whether it's epicardial or, or microvascular, except for the treatment is going to be very different. Obviously, you can't revascularize microvasculature. But what you can do is focus on the patient as a whole, which again, is actually a theme that you find in all kinds of coronary disease. You got to focus on the patient as a whole. If you focus on the lesion, you miss the boat right? So for example, it's risk factor modification, because a lot of these go along with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, you got to focus on all the things that you would have been focusing on anyways, but you can take your patient a little bit more seriously. However, if you want to demonstrate that your patient has microvascular dysfunction, have some objective evidence and not just say they do, then there are other tests that you can do. So you could do a PET scan. And I, I don't think it's within the scope of this conversation, but there are further testing such as PET, CMR, or cardiac MRI that you can do to further elucidate that your patient has microvascular dysfunction and demonstrate ischemia, right? So again, the key take home is treat the patient. It's going to end up being potentially some vasodilators, but really it's going to be like stroke and cardiovascular disease, preventative medicines like aspirin, statin, et cetera diet, you know, risk factor modification, et cetera, and, um, and let your patient know that you, you hear them. 
Yeah. So I think we can do, we can kind of go down a bunch of different pathways and risk factor modification. A lot of different things we could talk about here, diet, exercise, blood pressure control, and then obviously statins we just talked about a little bit. A good place to start for a lot of patients is the pooled cohort equation. And this is something that just to send in a plug is uh, discussed really well by Dr. Ahmed Kara and, and cardio, episode, cardio nerds. It was uh, episode 98. Basically, it's a, it was started, it was made in 2013, the ACCAHA guidelines, and it was a collation of five community cohorts effectively that uh, looked to adjust for cardiac risk over the subsequent 10 years. They realized in 2018 that this was uh, kind of inappropriately calculating certain populations. For example, overweight patients, it, it actually overcalled risk. And then for older patients, it weights age quite highly. Um, so that that's definitely a factor in it as well. And so they added some kind of risk adjusting things that can kind of impact your management, things like metabolic syndrome, for example. And so for our patient, we're kind of moving down the road where we, we think he probably has coronary artery disease. If he does have established coronary artery disease, that's going to that's gonna impact how we subsequently treat him. But it is good to start with kind of, a, kind of an equation estimate. Dan, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, I would just say, uh, so whenever you have a patient, no matter whether you see them in primary care or you see them with uh, having chest pain in the hospital, you know, it's always a chance for prevention because a lot of what we're talking about in terms of the treatment, especially when we're talking about stable ischemic heart disease, is really all about cardiovascular prevention. So as Rick says, this is going to basically have you doing a lot of things that, that kind of put the patient into context. So actually, uh, I'm at my uh, partner in crime, McGoyle had kind of put this paradigm together that really I started using in clinic. It's very helpful. It's the four plus two for cardiovascular prevention. Okay. So in the four, right, you're going to take four steps of risk stratification. Number one, you're going to do qualitative risk assessment. And that's basically identifying risk factors by, you know, just thinking about them. Are they smoking? Are, you know, are they, uh, do they have diabetes? Do they have obesity? Things that basically correlate with risk. But then you want to get, as, uh, as Rick said, you want to get a little bit nitty gritty. You want to actually see if you could quantify it. So you do a quantitative risk assessment, and that's going to use the pooled cohort equations, you know, such as the ASCVD risk calculator, you know, which helps, but it does miss things, right? So step three is risk enhancing factors. And those are things that you want to recognize that are poorly represented in these pooled cohort equations, like family history, things that kind of raise or lower risk for your patient, usually raise it. And then if you're if you're equivocal and you don't really know where your patient falls in, certain, in terms of risk, and this doesn't really apply to our patient here, but you could do a coronary artery calcium score, which we might talk about later and uh, how that differentiates from a coronary CT. But those are the four things. So your qualitative risk assessment, quantitative risk assessment, risk enhancing factors to add on to that. And then if you're unsure, maybe a coronary artery calcium score, and we could talk about the best ways of using that later. But then you've taken all of those things together and decided what your patient's risk profile is. And so now for treatment, it's two things. So it's the four plus two paradigm. So in treatment, it's going to be emphasize a healthy, healthy lifestyle to everybody. And we could talk more about the details of what that is. Um, and then two is you're going to escalate preventative measures with the increased risk. So if your patient is extremely high risk, you're going to be reaching for medications that are more potent in reducing those risks, such as aspirin and high intensity statin. If your patient is low risk, then you may counsel them and step one of the treatment is, is just enough lifestyle risk modifications. And so going back to our patient, you know, he has a couple of risk factors that start putting him at higher risk. And uh, as Rick talked about, but his ASCVD score puts him at a higher risk patient. And so again, even before his telling me about chest pain, right, I'm already thinking this is a good opportunity for prevention. 
Right. I think that's a great way to look at the gestalt and sort of, I, I, I love all that. You're speaking to my primary care heart. I feel like back when I was a resident and I, that was um, for the listener at home 37 years ago, and we were using therapeutic leeches for chest pain, but I feel like you'd have a patient who would come in with you, you know, they, this is so we have a, a patient whose BMI qualifies as obesity with dyslipidemia, who has, is hypertensive, has prediabetes. I don't know if we talked about tobacco use. Let's throw it in there and some family history for funsies. And the patient comes in and says, yeah, I'm having chest pain when I exert myself. And they get an EKG and there's T-wave inversions in uh, 2-3 and, and, and ABF or whatever. Like, that was a patient, I don't think it would be unusual back during my training where we would rush that patient off to the emergency department. So I guess my question for you is how worried should we be that this patient's going to kill over dead if we just sort of say, well, we should increase your statin and, and do okay. Like, you know, so it, I, I don't need numbers, but in terms of overall gestalt, like, is this something that should be managed as primary care preventive and we have plenty of time to do testing that we'll talk about in great detail or sort of how, how do you conceptualize um, this patient's immediate risk? And I'll ask Dan just because he looks at coronary arteries all the time and you can, and then Rick, you can certainly add if you have something to add. Yeah. So, you know, the best thing about medicine is that the patient's presentation and tempo usually reflects the need and urgency of how we have to address them, right? So if your patient comes to you in clinic like that, uh, they've been developing all those things over time, right? And so that lets you know, like, okay, we can probably sort this out over time. And that is basically with regards to the treatment and the evaluation, right? Just because somebody comes with all these things doesn't mean I have to like take a whole can of pills and start dumping it over their head, right? I could start introducing these pills one at a time so that they get acclimated and accustomed. And, you know, in fact, sometimes starting everything at once may uh, confuse the patient. And also if they have a, like a side effect or a symptom, you don't know which of the medicines is doing it. So again, something that's developing over years, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily could be treated over years. You should definitely address them soon, <laughs> but you don't have to send them to the emergency room and you can start picking at the things that they need to address one by one, you know? Um, on the other hand, if somebody tells me that over the last week they have been developing a symptom and they have this, you know, milieu, as you've described, of the patient with, you know, multi comorbidities and high risk, I am definitely thinking about that patient and already debating whether or not we need to send them for an, an emergent evaluation, let alone urgent evaluation. So let's let's go through that. So now now I'm no longer alarmed. I'm not worried the patient's going to drop in front of me. We have the person in clinic and we have just a host of risk factors that we can modify and things that we should think about. So tell me. And we can even sort of start with Rick. Tell me where you would start. So let's, I don't want to minimize lifestyle, therapeutic lifestyle changes. And so I think diet is important to talk about, but I think for, for the purposes of brevity, maybe let's focus on medications that we sure. would change right now, assuming that we're going to be talking about diet and weight loss and all the important things that we should be hopefully talking about every single visit. But tell me what medically, what we do for this patient who's now presenting with what sounds highly suspicious for um, stable angina. Yeah, exactly. So as you said, highly suspicious for stable angina, which tells us that he likely has clinical ASCVD, right? So we're not talking about primary prevention anymore. We're kind of moving to a different realm. I'll start with statins. Obviously, that's a low-hanging fruit. And Dan, if you have anything to add on here, please do. Uh, but he's, he's already on a statin. We can certainly up-titrate that and should likely up-titrate that to the maximally tolerated statin for him. And how, how do we want to think about this? There, there are a couple different ways. So adhering to a lipid-lowering diet, generally reduces your LDL cholesterol by 10 to 15%. Moderate intensity statins are going to give you another 30 to 49%, and then high intensity statins can give you a 50% or greater reduction. For this patient, we're going to be shooting for that 50% or greater reduction, given that he has clinical ASCVD. 
If we were still in a kind of a primary prevention mode here, uh, we could target at least 30%. That's from the, the kind of AHA guidelines. Um, but for him, we're really going to want to target 50%. And if you look at the European guidelines, they in fact would sometimes recommend being even more aggressive, recommending a target LDL cholesterol of under 55. Or if they've had a, an ASCVD event or a second AFCVD event, uh, they would want you to maybe even target lower than 40. So the take-home point here, I think, is, is starting statin, which he's already on, but up titrating and, and really getting to the maximally tolerated dose. And do statins actually improve symptoms? Do they reduce angina or we're just trying to prevent NMI? Dan, you want to take that? Yeah, Molly, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And I would start thinking of the treatment of stable ischemic coronary disease in two buckets, okay? You have your life-prolonging bucket, and then on the other hand, you have your symptom-resolving bucket, or at least trying-to-symptom-resolve bucket. We'll get to stents later, but... Um, from the life the life saving bucket, those are your antithrombotic uh, medications such as aspirin, and your statin, your antilipid medications. Those are really to improve lifestyle. I wouldn't necessarily tell a patient that yes, take your Lipitor and you might see an improvement in your symptoms. That's not really what it's meant for. It's really meant to lower you know the amount of risk that that patient has for an acute MI or a stroke or peripheral vascular disease for that matter. So those are, again, more holistic and targeted. And again, you're not really titrating them to a symptom. You're titrating them to either an LDL goal or you're titrating them or you're just parking them. You're put, like So for example, our patient's going to be high risk. So you might just put them on a high intensity statin and just park it there. And then on the other hand, we'll talk about antiangial therapies. And those are going to be things that reduce the myocardial demand or Im improve flow, such as uh, calcium channel blockers or beta blockers in the short-term rescue medications like sublingual nitro. Those are really more focused on the symptoms of things, and those are not focused on mortality benefits. There's not a mortality benefit in this patient population for these medications. So if your patient does not have symptoms, then there's no need to throw on them anti-anginal therapies. Does that make sense? It does, but can I clarify, beta blockers do have benefit in terms of longevity? Uh, no? In, in, no, so you're right. So beta blockers for just coronary artery disease do not have um, longevity. Now, in my, MI, they absolutely do. But in stable ischemic heart disease, you don't have to have your patient on a beta blocker just because unless they're having symptoms. It's a great anti-anginal. So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, we'll, we'll pitch underhand, I'm assuming we're just going to start this patient on aspirin empirically if they're not on aspirin already, I would assume. We're going to intensify their statin therapy. What would you do for this particular patient's angina? Would you throw on a, a beta blocker? Or would you, and then what do you do with sublingual nitro and how do you counsel patients to use it if you do opt to use it? That's a lot of questions all at once. I'm doing question <laughs> stacking like I tell my students not to do. So why don't we start with the beta blocker first, and then you can answer the nitro question. Sure. Yeah. And I might add just one additional point on to, to what, what Dan said. Um, so because something I've heard of before is you start maximally tolerated statin, you get them on lifestyle therapy with diet and exercise changes. When should you recheck a lipid panel? You can recheck as early as four to 12 weeks. Uh, maximal efficacy should be seen in that time window. Um, so again, if you're targeting those low LDLs and you're thinking about adding something like Zetia, even a PCSK9 inhibitor, uh, that, that might be when you want to start checking that. In terms of antianginals, the two upfront antianginals that we're going to use in stable angina are calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, as, as Dan had mentioned. And really, you want to try to couple this alongside your blood pressure control. So 
We saw that Mr. D'Angelo was already on an ACE inhibitor, which is a great option. It's actually a two-way recommendation for patients with chronic coronary syndrome. But in this, in this case, if he has extra blood pressure room and, and is still having anginal symptoms, starting a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker is a great move. Beta blockers exert their anti-anginal effect via heart rate reduction, where we're going to want to target 55 to 60, and a reduction in myocardial oxygen demand. And in this case, as Dan, you had mentioned, uh, you really don't see a mortality benefit here as you would see in heart failure patients. It's really about symptom management. So this is something we're starting to, to help them symptomatically, but, but not going to see a mortality benefit here with beta blockers. And, and I'll just add to that, you know, so until now, like uh, what we've been focusing on is the prevention of future ASCVD events, right? But now we're starting to think about treatment of symptoms. And once I'm thinking about treating symptoms, I'm already thinking about defining the anatomy, right? Because we want to know what's going on under the hood at that point, if I'm aggressively or even lightly uh, sprinkling anti-anginal on this patient. Because now I know that once I say he has stable disease and I don't have any other way of knowing how severe his disease is, right? And that's going to factor into how I think about this patient as a whole. So again, anti-stroke, heart attack, prevention, and all that, we start right away. When I'm already thinking about anti-anginals, I may give him something, give him something, you know, to take home or to at least start trial. And if it helps, actually, that might actually in increase my pretest probability of having stable disease. But I'm really now thinking, okay, I, I feel uncomfortable not knowing what's going on under the hood, if you will. Sure. This, this feels like you're walking us right into diagnosis territory. So now's, now's the time. So maybe where, where do we start with this? We, because as, as I think we, you've alluded to, there are, I believe at last count, 74 different tests now to evaluate <laughs> coronary anatomy. So where, or, or even sort of looking for ischemia. So what, what would be a logical thing to lead with? You know, should it be shoot for the echo first? We already have sort of an EKG under our, our belt. So where, where do you start with a patient like this? Yeah. Dan, you want to talk about echo? Yeah, for sure. So now we want to know what's going on under the hood. We want to know what's going on with our patient. So there's two very different approaches, but they're very complementary. And it's really about the question that you're asking. And it's the question that you want to help address with your patient. So for example, there's anatomical testing, which will give you an idea of what the coronary tree looks like. And then there's functional testing, which will give you an idea of how the muscle is feeling based on the coronary tree's anatomy. So one is a direct look at the coronary anatomy, and one is a look at the muscle which the coronary anatomy services, if you will. So you could think about them in two different ways. In the anatomical way, right, you can take them to the cath lab and what you, you know, will put wires and catheters up into the heart, and ultimately we're going to inject contrast into the coronary tree, light up those heart arteries, take an x-ray and circle around and get a good idea of what's going on with the patient. Now, when you're doing that, you have to recognize that you're getting a luminogram, which means you're just filling up the coronary arteries and looking at what is filled. But you're not looking at the coronary arteries themselves. You're looking at kind of the shapes that their lumens make. And so you're drawing inferences based on the relative amount of contrast that's going through the column of the artery, right? So if it's like, if it's uh, big and fat up top and then it gets skinny in the middle and big and fat at the bottom, well, you know that there's a stenosis, right? And sometimes the stenosis could be a little trickier because it's long and narrow, but basically what you're looking at is the lumen. So that's one anatomical type of testing. The other anatomical type of testing is using uh, cross-sectional uh, cross imaging, such as cardiac MRI or CT angiography. Now, the so that's to clarify, it's CT with contrast. Do you need to have a CT and it's got to be gated to the cardiac cycle and it's going to have the right timing such that 
you're catching your pictures right when there's blood flow through the coronary tree. And that's what a CTA is. Now, the CTA will give you a luminogram because you've injected contrast, but the additional thing that you get out of the CTA is you actually get to look at what the arteries look like. And that's very valuable because when patients start getting coronary artery disease, right, the first thing that occurs is not luminal narrowing, right? But what actually happens is there's buildup within the walls of the artery and they actually build outwards. They grow. That's called positive remodeling. Positive remodeling means that the lumen is being spared, but that nasty plaque is building out in the walls of the artery such that they are not being obstructed, but they are developing coronary artery disease. Now, why does that matter? It matters because the luminal narrowing is what causes the symptoms of epicardial disease, right? Not that positive remodeling. But for the patient, what matters most is actually the positive remodeling because that positive remodeling is associated with advanced risk of future events, cardiovascular mind. Because we said that stable disease, that lumen narrowing is usually pretty stable. It doesn't really burst open and spill out into platelets. But across the whole coronary tree are these little itty bitty 20% blockages or 30% blockages, really nothing that would ever be symptomatic. But those are so much more prone to pop at any time. And when you have positive remodeling, that means you're going to have tons of these locations along the artery that are going to be higher risk for rupture and so higher risk for MI. And, you know, that could be extrapolated to strokes as well. So that's what you get out of the assessment of the coronary tree with a CT angiography versus the cath. The benefit of doing an anatomic... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So if you were thinking about an anatomic study, I mean, it sounds like the CTA gives you a lot more information and is less invasive than the cath. Would there be a situation in someone with stable angina that you would go straight to cath? Uh, yeah. So that's a great, great question. So the way I think about CT is I love it when the CT is negative. I mean, when the CT is negative, you can give your patients reassurance and you could say, hey, you know, you actually do have positive remodeling. I see that. So let's continue with our aspirin statin plan because, you know, I know that we basically should be focusing on reduction of risk, like we had said earlier, but I don't see any obstruction of arteries that needs revascularization. It may need, you may have microvascular ischemia. We could think about that also, but at least epicardial disease, you don't have big obstructions and I could feel confident about that. And that's very good. On the other hand, if there's a lot of disease, right, I could say, well, you're at high risk. And depending on where that disease is, I can go to the next step, which is usually to get more of the gold standard look at the heart arteries and do a luminogram through coronary angiography. But if it's in the middle, sometimes you're not quite sure. And especially if they read, you get a lot of times where they read like 50 to 70% blocked. And, you know, in, in coronary artery disease, except for the left main artery, over 70 means something that could be fixed, not something that should be fixed, but something that could be fixed. Under 70 means something that we should probably uh, leave alone. And so when you get that 50 to 70, that's like, eh, you don't even know. And so you end up needing to go for a coronary angiography anyways. So I would say like this, in a patient that you really don't think you have a high pretest probability of having coronary artery disease, but you do think you should get an anatomical assessment uh, because the symptoms are fairly compelling, uh, CT might be a good choice because to rule out coronary artery disease is good. But in the patient with diabetes, they're 70 years old, they probably have a lot of calcified arteries, you're probably going to end up going to the cath lab anyways to get the gold standard evaluation of the coronary tree. You may as well go and refer straight to coronary angiography if their symptoms are making you suspicious enough for that. Well, that's a, that is a controversial point too. I think some people are, you know, are going to, I don't know, it's, it's tough. I think some people will say that, you know, you'll revascularize in the setting of, of like uh, angina. 
that is that is really not responsive to medical therapy. But that's kind of a whole big conversation. You can choose to include this or not. I just wanted to highlight the kind of no, and and I agree with what Rick's saying. I, this is like a practice pattern and a way of thinking about it. Um, but I think basically there's a paucity of data and a paucity of everybody agreeing to the same practice algorithm of who should go to the cath lab or not. But in general, a lot of patients just a lot of patients tend to if they have uh, findings on CT that are concerning, end up going to the lab to get a better look. So that's in general what happens. And so then you end up having a double die load, but I agree completely. And then the other thing is, uh, and this really goes into the whole uh, treatment management of stable coronary artery disease is like, what do you find, right? So if you find that there is a beautiful left main, a beautiful prox LAD, and then in the distal LAD, you find a 70% lesion in the uh, CT scan, well, that's not something that necessarily has to be assessed with a uh, coronary angiography and you could start treating medically because now you know that that's a low risk coronary anatomy that, you know, the patient's likely not going to have a big problem because of that. But on the other hand, if your CT shows a lot of proximal disease, the LAD is really tight, uh, you know, the RCA is really tight, right coronary artery is really tight, or the circumflex is really tight and all three, you really, you really should get a better lay of the land in terms of knowing what's going on before you make your, your final treatment algorithm. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial. As a company founded by doctors, they know how frustrating it can be to work with financial companies, which is why they've created a better way. Have you thought about refinancing your student loans? Well, unlike other companies, at Panacea Financial, the rates you get for student loan refinance doesn't go up because of your credit score, how much debt you have, or your income level. Have you ever received a letter offering you a really low rate to refinance your student loans only to spend time filling out an application, and then in the end, you get offered something much higher than advertised? Well, Panacea is different and doesn't waste your time. They are completely transparent and have four low fixed rates for student loan refinance right there on their website. With no loan maximums or cosigner requirement, Their student loan refinance is based on the respect physicians deserve and not a credit score or debt level. Join the growing number of physicians nationwide that expected more from their bank and switch to Panacea Financial. You can visit PanaceaFinancial.com today for a better way to refinance your student loans. That's Panacea, P-A-N-A-C-E-A, Financial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus member FDIC. And how does how does functional testing in this? So we so we we sort of glossed it past echo um, because the looking thinking about the anatomy. So in terms of when do we think about stress testing? Like for which patients is that appropriate for? Do we even do that anymore? Do we just completely ignore it now that we have these new toys that show the <laughs> this, the coronary arteries so well? Like what what is the role of stress testing? Who gets it? And how do you pick which one they get? So answer all those things and we'll give you two minutes, right? Go. Yeah. So I mean, stress testing is still probably the most, I don't have any data to support this, but probably the most (laughs) modality. And we're all still very, you know, familiar with using spec MPI or using uh, debutamine stress, right? There are pluses and minuses to all of them, right? So to talk about stress echo, what you're looking for is uh, basically wall motion changes after exercise. Now, that's a very uh, specific test. If you do have those wall motion abnormalities in in a regional pattern, that's going to be very specific for coronary artery disease, but it's not going to be tremendously sensitive uh, because like Dan said, non-obstructive coronary artery disease is is generally not going to cause those those issues and you're not going to pick that up on like a debutamine stress. 
it is preferred and and a lot of providers already know this, but it's worth stressing again, it is preferred to do uh, exercise whenever you can, because the ability to exercise in and of itself is a huge prognostic factor for patients with stable angina. The other option here is, is SPECT, right? And that's uh, the nuclear imaging that we talk about. And, and what's going to happen here is basically you're going to give the patient regadenosin, which is an adenosine analog, and it's going to cause vasodilation. Areas of the heart that are already maximally dilated because they're are ischemic on the other end and they're trying to get as much perfusion of those areas as possible are, are not going to be able to dilate anymore. And areas that were not dilated are going to dilate. So what you're going to happen is have is kind of a reduction in blood flow to the areas where are already maximally dilated, and you'll see ischemia, which shows up on the nuclear imaging. If it's in a regional pattern, we could potentially act on that. Now, the pluses and minuses, and Paul, I think you were kind of getting at this, why, why we don't use SPECT as much anymore. One, it does have the highest radiation load of any of the modalities we're talking about today. And then two, as we discussed, you're not going to pick up on that non-obstructive coronary disease. And as we know, it's really CAD burden is, is the what leads to events, right? It's really not necessarily about the obstructive disease there. And in fact, when we're talking about just circling back to coronary CTA really quickly, the Scott Hart trial showed that coronary CTA, in addition to standard of care, you had a reduction in mortality. And we think that was probably from people seeing the non-obstructive disease and acting on it, though that's a bit controversial as well. Yeah. And so I would just add, uh, putting those things together, that this is a really excellent uh, overview, Rick, and I completely agree. First of all, caveat is, remember, again, anatomical studies look directly at the anatomy. The functional studies look at what the response of the muscle is to the anatomy. So for an example, the CT angiography is probably going to be more sensitive to pick up coronary artery disease. So again, if you are under treating your patient's risk, a CT coronary angiography might help you escalate that. So you say, okay, we should definitely bump up the statin power, right? Uh, and then in the stress, another caveat for stress testing is when it comes to stress tests that utilize vasodilatation in order to stress the heart, right? Because there's two big fundamental ways to stress the heart. One is you give them a wallop, you know, wallop the heart with the little dibutamine, or you have them exercise, you know, like coax it into beating more. And if it can't hack it, there'll be a wall motion abnormality in a particular territory that correlates with a um, coronary artery. Uh, or you could steal, right? So you say, okay, well, if the circumflex is tight, the LED and the RCA are beautiful. We can vasodilate. And what will happen is that circumflex is always tight, right? Because it's tight because of the obstruction. And it's always trying to vasomax, vasodilate, you know, because it's trying to preserve the circ territory. The circ territory is like, I'm hungry, right? So it's totally maximally um, dilated at all times. But now the LAD and the RCA, who didn't need to be totally dilated, now you're giving a medication that does that for it. And so what will happen is there's going to be steel. Blood will be stolen from the circumflex territory and go to the LAD territory and the RCA territory. And then remember the muscle doesn't care about the relative, like the muscle in the circumflex territory doesn't know what's going on in the LAD territory. So the LAD territory is now eating all this beautiful nutrients and stuff. And the circumflex territory has that stolen. So it poops out and that's how you get your positive wall motion abnormality associated with that stress test. Now, remember that if you have balanced ischemia, which means the RCA is nailed with ischemia, the LAD also has an obstruction and the RCA also has an obstruction. So now I'm going to give this vasodilator and everybody was already vasodilated. So now nobody is going to be more vasodilated than the other. And so the relative amount of perfusion is going to not change, right? Because no one's stealing it from the other. That stress test may actually be normal, read as normal, right? And so that's particularly a thing you find with nuclear stress testing, particularly spec. Pet imaging is a little bit different, but just recognizing that. But if I could bring this all together, unless you guys want to ask me to bring it all together, uh, putting together 
when should I go for a stress test? When should I go for a an atomical test? I would say it like this, you know, the question that you're asking is going to guide your choice. So for an example, if I have a patient that I'm not quite sure has coronary artery disease, but they have a sort of compelling story of angina, and I'm at the point where I really want to know what's going on, right? So uh, I, if I got, let, and let's say this patient ends up having a 70% lesion in a circumflex artery, right? So I actually am asking a question is, do they have angina? I'm not asking a question of like, what is the anatomy? So if I got the anatomical test, I got the CT, right? And it shows that there's a 70% chance, the 70% stenosis of the left circumflex. I'm still not sure that that is causing his symptoms because I'm not really sure if his symptoms are anginal. But on the other hand, say I have him go on an exercise treadmill, right? And he's running, 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 running. And now he's getting chest pain, right? And I see on the stress echo, let's say we did a stress echo. So I see on the echo that the circumflex territory is down, right? And now he comes off the treadmill and he goes and relaxes. And now his chest pain goes away. And lo and behold, that wall of the muscle has gone away as the wall motion abnormality has improved. So I've identified that this patient has angina and I've identified the territory that he has angina. So I got a lot of information. On the other hand, as we said, doing that test, right? Even if let's say it's totally normal, that patient may have tons and tons and tons of coronary artery disease that's just not obstructive. And so if I don't have him on a maximally tolerated, uh, if I don't have him on a maximal statin and an aspirin and I got the anatomic test, now I might, but I would not if I had just done the stress test. So those are things that I think about when deciding whether or not I should get a, one test or the other. Not necessarily. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we want, we I, want you to make it easy for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah Beth and I talk all the time. We just want the test that will yes, give us the just answer give us every one time. Test. So just, yeah, what, is, what is the thing that will tell us? Yeah, CT, CT is definitely on the rise and, and anatomic imaging has shown a ton of benefits. <laughs> Shoot, I think I failed right. you. Yeah, definitely. I would definitely so say So either that, one, just pick one. <laughs> I, yeah, let, let's, let's make it easy. I would say for starters, anyone really works because if you're looking for major things, then both would show you major things. If you're looking for subtle questions, uh, say how long a patient can exercise for without, without getting ischemic, right? Then then maybe go with the exercise, right? But if you're just looking, and if you're looking for the general anatomy, deciding whether or not you need to refer the patient to a cardiologist, right? Maybe a CT is a good place to start. But yeah, there, you can't go wrong unless you ignore your patient. <laughs> I guess so. And maybe let me just one more time, just to see if I'm conceptualizing this correctly. And this is not a judgment on your excellent education, but so say you have a patient who does not have as compelling a story. So some risk factors for coronary artery disease giving you a story that sounds kind of consistent with angina. That seems to me the patient who's sort of intermediate risk that you might do the functional stress testing to sort of better define whether this is a true anginal symptom or not. But if you have someone who has a more compelling story, it seems to me that then it might be worth just sort of foregoing stress tests because it wouldn't actually change a whole lot that you do and actually look at the anatomy itself to see if there's anything more aggressive to do. Does that sound like a reasonable approach or am I, am I missing things entirely? Yeah, I think that's actually a terrific approach and it will go dovetail into, let's say, if you wanted to talk about the ischemia trial, right? And you wanted to know, is my patient a patient that fit into that trial, right? Then the CT is going to be a totally the answer, right? If you want to know if can I uh, can I push off revascularization strategies and try medical therapy, but I just want to make sure that this person is not hanging on by a thread in their left main, then a CT is a perfect way to go to answer that question because that's the question you're asking. It's really again the question that you're asking will dictate what is the best modality to assess what's going on under the hood. Yeah. And there's like, you know, I, I think Dan and I come at it from a little bit different angles. Dan's an interventionalist. I'm, I'm kind of more in prevention and, and imaging and, and, uh, 
a lot of this is going to be practice patterns, right? But one one kind of paradigm that I like to think of is so like let's take a step back and just talk very briefly about coronary artery calcium scores because that's kind of where it starts. So what is coronary artery calcium score? Pretty simple test. You get a non-contrast chest CT and you look for calcium in the coronary arteries, right? What does the calcium in the coronary arteries mean? It's a proxy for plaque burden, which we've discussed being a huge risk factor for subsequent ASCVD events, right? If you have no coronary arteries, if you have if CAC if you have a CAC of zero or CAC score of zero, the pronunciation kind of goes back and forth. Uh, that is really, really helpful in saying this person's likely not going to have an ASCVD event in the next five years. And in fact, there was a study out of Houston Methodist where they looked at patients presenting with acute chest pain, right? And they randomized the patients. I'm not totally sure how they did this study, but the patients either went to SPECT MPI, right? And got a, got a SPECT, or they went to coronary calcium score, okay? Patients with a negative SPECT at follow-up had uh, a, a MACE, uh, a kind of cardiac event risk of 1.2%. Patients with a CAC of zero had 0.3%, right? So that that is, to have a score of zero is very protective. Now, let's say you do have a positive CAC, right? So now we're talking about established CAD. Something like a coronary CTA is going to be really helpful because you can define the burden of disease, the stenosis, and actually what does the coronary tree look like? right? SPECT is not going to give you that. What you get with SPECT, what you get with, with stressed butamine or, or exercise, like Dan was mentioning, the exercise component is really helpful, but you're, you're not going to get a sense of the coronary tree. You're not going to know kind of what their disease burden is. So it, it's a tough, it's a touchy subject, but I think there's a lot of research ongoing and we're going to learn a lot more in the next few years. Yeah. And to add to Team CT, right? There's a lot of other things you get besides the coronary tree. Like we have to remember that it's get, getting a whole sense of the heart. So you're learning anatomy. You can see the LV squeeze, depending on how many, how long they stay on, you know, in terms of the capture and how much radiation they're going to use to capture what they're going to be capturing, right? Um, and there's a lot of ways to reduce the radiation, but you can get like a full cardiac cycle, right? So you can get LV function, you can get valvular disease, you can get so much information from a CT. So there's big camps. And even within cardiology, there's a lot of, uh, of feisty debate. Uh, so if it's if it seems confusing, and, and this is a general rule for me, if anything seems confusing in medicine, it generally means that there's no one right way, and uh, and you're just you're just hearing the mixed messages. So you kind of just pick your practice pattern of what works for you. And I say just pick the modality that answers the question that you're asking. All right. So uh, Mr. Dandana has some kind of study, one of the many choices, <laughs> <laughs> which. <laughs> Confirms our suspicion that uh, he does, in fact, have ischemia. So we diagnose him with stable angina. And how do you tell your patients what that means? Like, what are the words that you use when you define stable angina for a patient? Okay, so Rick, jump in. I, I try to look at your face to see if uh, you want to go or not. <laughs> but so let me know if you want to go or I'll go. Well, I guess, let me just ask, let me reframe. So you mean, how do we explain it to the patient as to what's happening with stable angina? Exactly. Like they, they say, you know, I get the stress test results. It shows that I have, you know, ischemia. And then I've told you that I have these stable symptoms of chest pain, you know, for the last six months. What, what's going on? Yeah. So as we've discussed a little bit, again, it, it, it's, I think it's worth going through um, kind of that discussion of what is an MI, an acute plaque rupture event, and what is stable angina, a slow buildup of coronary artery disease, right? And that those are really separate. <laughs> Sorry, should I should I restart or so? Anyway, do you actually say that to patients? I mean, do you think patients understand that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you can tell them that because I think even like providers or patients, what is, what is a patient's concern? Their concern is that they're going to have, they're going to have stable angina and all of a sudden, boom, they're going to pop a lesion and they're just going to, you know, have a big MI and, and it's going to be a big problem for them. Now we know, and we can talk a little bit about the ischemia trial. We know that if you're putting patients on medical therapy without going right to cath, that their risk of having a big event is not actually different than if you were to go to cath first. But it, it is worth talking to them that these are, I think, I think that these are separate disease processes. And so breaking it down that, look, there are, there are blockages uh, in your heart that build up slowly over time, leading to downstream kind of the cells kind of wanting oxygen and, and having something we call ischemia. But I think it's, I don't know, and I'm, I'm going a little bit off the road here, but it's, uh, I, think, I think it is helpful to talk about some of those things. That's great, Rick. And the way I approach it, and, and sometimes I have to tell the patient like right after we just found out that they have terrible disease, right? Uh, and sometimes I, I get to tell the patient that it's in, you know, single vessel and we'll medically manage it. What I tell them is, whatever we find, we're going to come up with a good plan that works for you. And we're going to figure out a way that reduces risk for heart attacks. And also, it keeps you living longer so you can enjoy the things that you enjoy. But also, we're going to get down to business and we're going to we're going to work at this together. I do try to explain to them the difference between an acute MI and stable disease, right? They're totally different beasts, as Rick's saying. And I explain it to them as the same way I explained it earlier, which is that stable disease, think of it as like hard, solid, solid blockages that just like don't really change that much from day to day. And so we can address them as such, right? And we're going to just prevent them or try to prevent them from growing and ever cause you more problems. And then but I'm going to tell them, but we do have to look out. You are at higher risk and we're going to do all the lifestyle modifications that we have to do. And we're going to look out for symptoms that say, hey, something's different. So so call me if something's different. Go to the hospital if something's different, particularly with COVID-19 where people were not doing this, right? We really have to let the patient know, don't just start popping the nitroglycerin. If your bottle's empty because all of a sudden you started using multiple pills, like you gotta, you gotta tell somebody, you gotta tell your wife. And let your wife drag you into the hospital, whatever it is. So those are the things that I counsel them. And I, I try to educate them about what is going on. And a drawing usually it really helps, right? Drawing, and I'll, I'll draw like a tube and then for the artery, and I'll draw in, you know, hard plaque, and I'll, I'll fill it in and say, like, this isn't changing. This, And then I'll draw arrows that go across this. And I'll say, you know, one arrow goes across it really easily. But then I draw three arrows, and the two arrows can't cross it. So I have like basically the two arrows and one that does. And I say, well, this is when you're exercising and you need three arrows of blood flow, but one is one is enough at rest. And this is why you're getting your symptoms. And you're going to take the nitroglycerin to open up it a little bit and get the three arrows through. Those kind of things are things that really help connect with the patient. But but I really try to emphasize that whatever we find, especially if we're going to go through another step of testing where we may find information that could be incredibly life altering, I need to start telling them about that beforehand. So I will tell them, you know, hey, we might find that a surgical revascularization is going to be the right thing for you, given the fact that you have diabetes and stuff. It is totally possible. Let's start thinking about that now Let's so we don't have to freak about it later. But whatever it is, it's going to be a plan for you to get to the goals that you need so that you can enjoy living. And how, how that's great. How do, you, how do you counsel patients in terms of what activities they can and cannot do once you've sort of made the, the diagnosis of, of stable angina so far? So how much can they exercise? Sexual activity often comes up. So what are they allowed to do and what should they be careful with? How do you couch that conversation? That's just a great question. Rick and I were, ta were talking about this earlier. You know, um, so, so why do we even worry about stable ischemic disease, right? This goes back to the fundamental question. Like, 
what is so bad about having an artery that's narrowed, right? Okay, so I think of like three things that are terrible cat- catastrophes that make us worry. One is ventricular fibrillate, you know, fibrillate, you know, fibrillation or VTAC, like an, an arrest, right? A sudden death. Besides for angina, there are three things that I think about. One is sudden cardiac death, right? All of a sudden, the heart becomes ischemic. VF occurs. Boom, patient's out. I feel terrible, right? And uh, and and that that would be that's something that we yeah. <laughs> that's bad. The second thing that we worry about is MIs, heart attacks. Is this plaque going to rupture and turn into a heart attack? And all of a sudden, I go from being ischemic to being dead, right? And that's totally different beasts, right? Now a whole wall isn't working, right? That's a totally different beast. Another thing that we want to avoid: myocardial infarction. And then the third thing is heart failure, right? We all know that heart failure is being driven by primarily ischemic cardiomyopathy, right? That means that there are multiple events that lead up to the heart muscle not working. And that's a whole different can of beans, right? Once a patient is in heart failure, they have a completely different mortality trajectory, right? So when I think about stable coronary artery disease, those are the things that keep me up at night. So let's just address them, right? So, and this will address activities, right? It's gonna go back to activities. So ventricular fibrillation, you know, we know that in acute MI, a big presenting feature is arrhythmia, right? But we don't really see that with stable ischemic disease unless there's previously done, you know, previous MI and scar and you have like this monomorphic VT. So why are we not concerned about that? And I'll even ask you the question of like, you'll take your patient and tell them to go on the treadmill, right? And you're gonna tell them to exercise and you're actually looking for ischemia. You're actually looking to make your patient ischemic. Uh, Why are you not worried about them dropping dead on the treadmill? And the answer is that, it goes back to what we said earlier. Things that develop over time tend to not get worse uh, in short periods of time. So there's, there's something called ischemic preconditioning. It's been well documented that when the myocardium is subjected to periods of ischemia, it gets better at being alive, right? It starts to recognize like, hey, I need to do things in my mitochondria that prevent me from going into sudden cardiac death. And so when you counsel your patient in exercise, going back to that question, right? You're not afraid of them going into VFRS, even if they have stable ischemic disease, right? Um, And so therefore you could say, you know, go ahead and push yourself. And if you're really nervous, you could go to cardiac rehab where they will push you under a lot of uh, supervision and monitoring you. And then they'll say, okay, wow, Mr. Smith, you are really able to crush it on this treadmill. And we are not noting any ischemia happening now, you know, be merry and start jogging, right? The caveat there is, this is why I like to know what's under the hood is, yeah, if the patient has a really tight left main lesion, I would think very differently about it, even if it's stable, right? So that's that's why I like to know what's under the hood. But in terms of exercise, that's why I'll say, you know, it's okay to push yourself. But as soon as things change, right, as soon as you're not able to push yourself and, uh, you know, you were able to do the gym three times a week, no problem, and now you can't go to the gym, you're even freaking out about going to the gym because you don't want to feel that chest pain sensation, call me, let's re- reassess the plan because things have changed. You're no longer in the realm of stable ischemic disease. Yeah. And the ESC actually does recommend for patients with angina or chronic coronary syndrome, uh, 30 to 60 minutes, five times a week, right? So they do kind of give an explicit recommendation. And, and again, as we mentioned, it's an ind- exercise capacity is an independent predictor of mortality with angina. So even just seeing what, what patients can do is, is really important. And do you encourage them to keep walking through the pain or when they feel pain, they should stop and rest? Yeah. So personally, uh, and, and Rick, correct me if there's data on this, um, I would say don't over push it, right? Like, you know, do what feels right. Uh, because again, uh, pushing through the pain is not necessarily going to be so helpful. 
but I might work on antiangial medications, right? So there are other ways to help them achieve the exercise that they want to. And that's with, you know, beta blockers and a calcium channel blocker. So there is a way to help them medically through that. Um, and I would be working with them, right? But again, if they, if their pain is not allowing them to exercise in the way that they're exercising, that tells me that they're not responsive to the medical therapy that they're on. And so I have to get more aggressive with the medical therapy, or I have to think about offering them a revascularization strategy. But that's exactly the point. Like if my patient can't go on his three-mile jog, right, that he's been doing for 30 years, uh, that's going to spiral into him becoming not jogging at all, right? And so then we have to do an intervention. doesn't necessarily need a stent or a bypass surgery, but it needs some sort of refocus and... Um, resetting of what this patient needs treatment-wise. You, you all did an episode on PAD uh, pretty recently that, that was that was good on this too, where I thought that was really interesting. Yes, yeah. the great Dr. Wachter. Yeah, when you said ecstemic preconditioning, I got all excited because that was something I actually heard of before about you know, two months ago. <laughs> I saw the spark in your eyes light up and I loved it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that never felt more alive. Dan, I think that's a perfect setup to move the case along. So uh, we see Mr. Dangio back in six months and he's now on a maximum uh, high intensity statin. His blood pressure is 120 over 80. He's on a beta blocker. His heart rate's 60. He still says he has angina in ways that are interfering with his life. So what what would you recommend for next steps for him? Uh, so it depends on who you ask, I'm sure. Uh, Rick may have a different paradigm, of course, uh, coming from the prevention side. But uh, for me, I, I really like to, again, totally practice pattern. And I really need to say this caveat because I'm sure there's a lot of discussion about how to approach this particular patient scenario. But for me, I remember, you know, in heart failure, guideline-directed medical therapy are lifesavers. So that's the beta blocker, the ACE, ACE inhibitors, uh, you know, whatever it is, and Tresto, you know, and now the SGL2 inhibitors, right? Like those are life-saving medical therapies. And we want to maximize all of them, right? We we know that we're supposed to up-titrate the, the beta blocker. We're supposed to go up in the metoprolol. We're supposed to maximize this medicines because these medicines were tested and trialed in maximal doses. And so that's a big focus. But when, when we're dealing with anti-angial therapies, we have to remember that they're really focused on symptomatology, right? They don't have in and of itself a mortality benefit. It's the aspirin and the statin that does, but it's not necessarily the anti-anginal milieu that you do. And so just recognizing that as you, you know, increase the doses, they may have side effects to them. And so those are things that you're working with your patient. But when you get to doses that you feel are maximized for this patient, and even, and you know, their blood pressure is tolerating it and everything, and you've really optimized them. And if they have some heart failure, they're, they're euvolemic at this point, and you've really maximized it, then the best next step that you offer the patient, that they come with associated risk, but you offer the patient to discuss, is a revascularization strategy. And the first step for that is going to be coronary angiography. And if you're referring to somebody directly or you're going through a cardiologist, it's good to have a good relationship with the person that you're referring to. You want to know that they're not, they're going to approach the patient with the same mindset that you approach the patient and you're working as a team. So you can refer, but you can also be in uh, discussion beforehand. And then it's going to really depend on what the anatomy shows. Um, and that's going to be a whole different uh, approach, you know, so uh, we can definitely go into that, but that, that would be the next step. So I guess I, I'm going to go broad and maybe even just sort of ask you all just to discuss, I, I think we're sort of dancing around the, the topics of the orbita and the ischemia trial and sort of what the implications are. I guess sort of going back all the way back to the beginning and sort of the pathophysiology, it seems like you should be able to go in there and just pop that thing open and then the patient feels better and then they don't have heart attacks and you've won the game. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. So I wonder if you can sort of tell us about the recent trials and how they've maybe changed how we're thinking about, or if they've changed how we're thinking about um, 
PCI and its role in stable angina at least? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. So, so like you said, either when we're having a conversation with the patient in the room or talking about the pathophys, we're talking about separate processes when we talk about an MI versus stable angina, right? And just to reiterate, the stable angina is slow buildup of plaque over time leading to symptoms and, and an MI being an acute plaque rupture. And so what are we trying to do when, when we treat these patients? Well, we're trying to give them symptomatic benefit, one. And two, we're trying to prevent downstream uh, ASCVD events, right? And so there are a couple of big trials. Just to start, the, the ischemia trial is the most recent big one, but to, to give some context, I'll start with cur the COURAGE trial. So this was Dr. Bowden in 2007, a different time it was before, before I was in training, actually. And what they looked at was, in patients with stable coronary artery disease, does optimal medical therapy plus PCI or optimal medical therapy alone lead to uh, better outcomes? And what they found was no difference between the groups with respect to cardiovascular events. And so everyone knew that and they thought, okay, this is great. But what they didn't look at was kind of the more severe end of that spectrum. Not quite unstable angina, right? We're not talking about enstemies, but patients with moderate severe ischemia on stress testing, what do we do for these patients? And that's exactly what they tried to answer with the ischemia trial. Doctors Marin and Hockman kind of asked this question. In patients with moderate to severe ischemia on stress testing, right? Uh, do they benefit from PCI if there is a revascularizable lesion in addition to optimal medical therapy or optimal medical therapy alone. And what they found on median 3.3 year follow-up was again, no mortality difference between those two groups, right? So we can still comfortably say to ourselves when we're in the room with the patient, you know, you're not likely to have, we have time to discuss this. We have time to add on medical management. We don't need to rush to the cath lab right now. Now there was a sub-study by Dr. Spertus that looked specifically at this question of angina, right? And they, and they said, okay, well, we know there isn't necessarily mortality benefit, a benefit with respect to ASCVD events. Is there a difference with respect to angina? And they did see that with revascularization, right? And that benefit increased with the frequency of angina. They used the Seattle Angina Questionnaire, but basically daily, weekly angina, you saw pretty, pretty profound benefits. And so again, what we're thinking about is, is from a Outcome standpoint, no difference, right? But if we're looking, at, if we're thinking about someone with really severe angina, someone who who is really that's really affecting their quality of life, that that may be a reason to go for catheterization. Yeah, and just to dovetail with that, it goes back to the three things that we're worried about with stable ischemic disease, and this is what the trial was addressing: Is my patient going to have a VF event? Is my patient going to have an MI and drop dead with or without any VF event? And is my patient going to have ischemic cardiomyopathy? Those are the questions that it was answering, and the answer was no right? I can go with medical therapy first. I have time. Now, remember that that gives you kind of like a, an idea that at least within three years of us making this diagnosis, we could feel comfortable that medical therapy is appropriate. But the ischemia trial still needs to be brought out over time, right? Because you want to, you know, for a VF event, fine, that's probably not going to happen now. And it might not even happen in five years, right? But what about stable? What about ischemic cardiomyopathy? What about in ten years out? Are these patients going to come back with, uh, you know, ischemic cardiomyopathy? You know, and and then now a lot of times, you know, when patients come in later with ischemic cardiomyopathy, they sometimes have no revascularization options because the anatomy comes such where it's so diffuse or so complicated and complex, or they're so sick that they can't undergo bypass surgery. So now they come in with stable ischemic disease. So that question is still up in the air. And it's crazy to me that it's still up in the air, but we still don't know the answer. But at least I think my take home from the ischemia trial, and a lot of people think like this, but again, it's uh, with the ischemia trial, I think everybody took what they needed to take out um, from the trial. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> but my sure. take home is what we said earlier, that first question that you asked me, Paul, do we need to freak out and send the patient who comes in with stable ischemic disease to the emergency room? 
No, absolutely not. And we have a lot of time to figure this out with the patient. And if like you put the patient on, you know, five milligrams of amlodipine and all of a sudden the patient feels amazing, right? You can feel pretty good that that's the right choice for this patient, right? That has never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, I think that like definitely um, addresses a large part of that. But it, obviously the story is very complex. And um, yeah, we could definitely answer more questions on it if you'd like. Yeah, I, I feel like all of my patients with stable angina still end up getting stented. I mean, do you think practice will change over time? Well, so that's the thing. It's really a shared decision-making thing ultimately, right? You know, because like, and and then the other thing that we have to emphasize is that nuance is the devil's in the details, right? So for example, you know, you have a patient that comes in with chest pain, that's classic, right? And um, and they kind of just want to go jogging again. You know, they just, they hate not being, jog you know, they hate that they cannot jog. They just hate it. And it bothers them and it stresses them out, right? And they come in and they have a nice little interventionalist dream, that focal lesion that just takes one stent and they're going to be totally fine afterwards. And a lot of them will uh, have resolution of their symptoms. And with the not, you know, the newer drug eluting stents, the patency rates are really good. Um, and now they don't have to go on a lot of, you know, anti-angelo medications and they'll be fine. That might be something for that patient. But for example, if Let's say now, instead of seeing that one focal lesion, I see a bunch of lesions that would require bypass surgery, or I see a lot of lesions that are making it very complex, and there's a lot of diffuse disease, and revascularization has higher risk, right? Just the revascularization itself has higher risk. The stenting itself in a patient that has a lot of calcified disease, and we need to use advanced therapies like a drill, like a rotoblader, is just like, uh, is literally a drill that we use to, you know, go through the calcium and, you know, do all these bifurcational fancy things that increase the risk. So the risk-benefit ratio of medications versus procedures starts to change, and the shared decision-making has to change, and the patient has to be informed about this, and medical therapy might be better. So it depends on that, and it also depends on what the patient wants, right? If the patient says, I'd rather no sense, uh, I'd rather treat me with medicines, you can't go wrong. You know, that's kind of the, the take-home that you can do that. Um, the ischemia trial does not really, and, and again, you could assess this on your own because I am an interventional fellow. But the ischemia trial does not say medical therapy is superior to stents for symptoms, right? It just says that it's not the the things that we worried about, like those things that we talked about, MI, heart attack, heart failure, um, you know, those things are in the, at least in the next three years or so is not going to be a differentiating fact. So you shouldn't say, you know, back in the day before we were training, even though, uh, Paul, you said you're pretty old, but, uh, you know, look at. But, but that was exactly how I framed it. But yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, back in the day, right, if you had ischemia, you thought it had to be fixed. Like, that was the obvious thing. That is not not really the case anymore. And so that is what the ischemia trial tells you. Yeah, and I think it's worth going back really quickly to that discussion of non-obstructive CAD. Because again, not all patients with angina are going to have stentable obstructive lesions, right? So again, one of those subsets of the ischemia trial, so it was two layers. First, they do a stress test and they look for moderate to severe ischemia. All right, so that's one layer. And then they did coronary CTA and they looked for obstructive lesions. And if you didn't have those, you were screened out and went to a different group, the Chow ischemia group, which as we mentioned, was predominantly female, 66% female versus 29% in the primary ischemia trial. 
Interestingly, those patients, again, they still have moderate to severe ischemia on stress testing. They have non-obstructive lesions. They actually had more frequent angina. They had 17% weekly angina as compared to only 4% of the population in the ischemia trial had weekly angina. So this is still a population who still needs treatment, right? They don't have anything stentable, but they still need to be paid, ten- paid attention to, still need treatment. And we're still going to do those things that we talked about, beta blockers, statins, and uptitrating medical therapy. So I feel like this seems like a, a good place to ask for what take-home points that you each have for. So why don't we, that was very well said, by the way, Rick, but why don't we, why don't we start with Dan? What, what are the key elements that we need to take away from, from this long discussion that we've had um, that you'd leave for our listeners? And then we'll, Rick will ask you for the same questions. Okay. So uh, uh, just a few take-home fr- uh, from all of this is treat the, the patient, not the lesion, right? The lesion is a part of the patient, but it's all about risk modification, right? And that's what it comes to when it comes to stable ischemic disease. Listen to your patient, right? If they're telling you of chest pain, evaluate and assess. And again, use those risk factors or the holistic approach to your patient and the risk assessment that you've done, like we said earlier with the four plus two model to assess how deep or how you should contextualize their chest pain. Okay. Number three is we have ischemia trial. We have a lot of evidence that says that you know, depending, obviously, depending on the anatomy, if it's not high risk, if it fits into the ischemia trial, if it fits that paradigm, medications are a great place to start. In fact, encouraged and it should be your first line of, of, of defense for your patient. But that being said, shared decision making. And as you work with your patient to, uh, to titrate the medications to their stable ischemic symptoms, um, you know, you will come, you know, it's, it's a dynamic process and you'll basically figure out a good medium for your patient and reassure them that you have a plan and there's a plan A, B, and C. And that can be, you know, titration, 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 and then potentially revascularization or different depending on what their needs are. And then um, remember that risk reduction is essential, right? Separate from antianginal is the risk reduction. So it's that aspirin and statin therapy, dietary modifications, diabetes control, all of those things remain a cornerstone of treatment of stable ischemic disease. You're just not in primary prevention, but it's all the more reason to get more aggressive with risk factor modification and reduction because you're in secondary prevention at this point. Yeah, I agree with that totally. That's so well said. And I think I would break it down into really two points. One, we want to prevent events. That's one of our goals, right? Cardiovascular event prevention is, is a big goal within cardiology. And then two, we want to treat symptoms, right? And both of those come down to treating the individual patient. But I think what kind of melds those when we're talking about stable coronary artery disease, stable angina, is that, that you have time, right? And you have time to do both of those things medically before necessarily needing to go to intervention, right? So we have time to do the antianginals. We have time uh, to treat uh, other risk factors. And that's really what the ischemia trial tells us, right? And that's what the courage trial told us before and what we've learned to date. And so working on all those things together and then deciding in a shared way with the patient where you want to go next is is really the way to proceed. I like that. That was really well said. They were both wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) Well, we covered a lot tonight. I really appreciate it, guys. This has been really helpful. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yum. <laughs> Short, tasteful, I liked it. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. 
We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Michael Sternberg, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganoff on our website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Molly Hoyblein. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Just head there and create your account today. We should also thank the amazing Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you are doubtless hearing behind our voices. We should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. As always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.